Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich. Also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Fudge presiding. This, 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 this is on trial, and I am your host, and for tonight I am your defense attorney, The Schedule, your mandated reporter, and frankly I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And joining me uh, as the prosecution for tonight's events is Mr. Sean Comer to you. Sean Comer, how you doing, sir? Hello, Jet Bears. I'm Sean. You're not. And Mark gave me the indefensible task of defending, of prosecuting one of my favorite childhood movies. Actually, one of the few, one of the few movies I remember from childhood that really still holds up well to this day. It does. Of course, the movie that we'll be discussing tonight here is Jumanji, not the one with Jack Black and The Rock. That was Damn You, Hollywood, and we did that earlier this week. Um, Much to Robert Winfrey's chagrin. No, tonight is the delight that was the 1995 feature starring the late Robin Williams, Jumanji. And And I have to say, maybe Kirsten Dunst's best work? We'll see. We'll talk about it. Maybe. Maybe. Um, You could kind of call it a toss-up between probably... Well, I don't know. If it's three ways, it's not exactly a toss-up, because then you would need a three-sided coin, and that's not a thing. Um, (laughs) It's it's kind of a neck-and-neck-and-neck tie, I think, between this interview with the vampire and... I would say Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but then again, I also say that having not seen her turn on Fargo, which, I, uh, which I've heard is also right up there with some of her finest hours. So I take, that as, I take that as you will. That's my limited, slightly uninformed opinion. It's no Spider-Man 3. I think we can both agree on that. <clears throat> Thank Fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank the upper deck foil embossed fuck it's not Spider-Man 3. Because God have we been round and round on how much I hate that movie. Yeah, we have. Yeah, this is, uh, maybe we can label this as this is the uh, Kirsten Dunn's gives a fuck era of acting. Uh, but, <laughs> but again, we'll, we'll talk about that and the whole cast here. Um, we have a surprising, surprisingly funny turn from David <clears throat> Allen Greer. Uh, we've got uh, Baby oh, Newworth. No, 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 something... no, wait, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Pump, pump those brakes. Why, why surprisingly funny? David Allen Greer is, is quite a talented guy. Oh, no, no. I'm not besmirching the talent of David Allen Greer 
as a comedian. But can you count on one hand the amount of funny mainstream feature performances he's had? Feature performances... Excuse me. I, I apologize for any gaseous noises on my end. I'm just finishing dinner over here. Um, feature performances, no, but even even as a, a little elementary age, wee tiny Sean, hey, not not yet a jet bear, but a jet cub perhaps. Um, even then, I kind of thought he was a funnier in Living Color cast member than Jim Carrey, and I kind of didn't understand why Carrey was the one who who got the major breakout roles at the time. He was exceptionally silly on that show, and he spoke to the heart of America yeah. that likes their comedy lowbrow. And uh, you know that's that that's not to that's not to say anything of the kind of performer that Jim Carrey be- became. But back then, I don't know. He was just kind of the one where he, even then, as a kid, and I think I was about oh somewhere between nine and twelve years old when In Living Color was hitting its prime. If I may humbly date myself just a little bit, but. Even back then, any time, almost any time he was on screen, I just kind of, it was the equivalent of me looking at my watch going, are you done yet? You know who my personal favorite was on that show? Damon Wayans. There's a guy who I wish his acting career, his feature career had taken off. Damon Wayans was a funny, funny motherfucker on that show. And his stuff with David Allen Greer was hilarious. Uh, you know what? I'm I'm no big fan of Sean and Marlon Wayans, but I, I think categorically Damon and Keenan Ivory Wayans are the are the two most talented members of that family. Like hands down. I would uh I don't, I don't know if I could argue with that. So anyway, tonight we are discussing Jumanji from 1995 again, starring Robin Williams. <laughs> And we're doing we're doing that in uh, syncing up with the Jumanji soft reboot slash standalone sequel featuring The Rock and Jack Black and Kevin Hart. Um, so let's get into it, Sean. Why don't you give us some notes on this movie? Well, Mark, let's let's just go ahead and be obvious. If if you were to look at this movie and say. Without Robin Williams, there is no Jumanji. This would be one time it could not be taken as hyperbole. Uh, yeah, with, with even you know, even if you might have meant it as such, you would be more correct than you realize. Because uh, this came about because Peter Goober, when he was visiting Boston, had a brief little powwow with. Chris Van Allsburg, the author of the original children's book, Jumanji, which came out in 1981. Uh, he lived nearby in Providence, Rhode Island, and Goober wanted to discuss possibly optioning the story. Uh, and in fact, Van Allsburg wrote an early draft of, draft of the script. Um, now, try, now, initially, and this is the reason why I say it wouldn't have happened without Robin Williams, he was the condition on which TriStar Pictures gave the go-ahead to 
finance the film. He was going to get top billing. Uh, the only problem with that was Robin, when he read the first script he was handed, actually declined the role. And at the same time, uh, when he finally did sign on after screenwriters Greg Taylor, Jim Strain, and Jonathan Hensley, and director Joe Johnston, he of later Jurassic Park 3, infamy, uh, gave it a, a a rather extensive top-to-bottom overhaul. Uh, Johnston still wasn't sure that Williams was quite right because, granted, he had already submitted himself as one of his generation's most electrifying, innovative entertainers, but as as a pure actor, so to speak, he couldn't quite rein in that instinct for improvisation. And they sort of had to have a come-to-Jesus in which he came to grips that this was a very thriftily written story, and it required that he stuck as close as possible to the scenes as they were outlined. And later they gave him some opportunities to go back and film some alternate takes, improvising with co-star Bonnie Hunt, but, yeah, otherwise what we saw was pretty much what we got. Uh, at the time, it was – it didn't gain its acclaim so much for the performance of any one actor, although it does it does feature a, a very formidable, respectable cast uh, from Robin Williams and Bonnie Hunt down through, as we mentioned at the top, a very young – Kirsten Dunst, a very young Bradley Pierce, a fresh off in living color David Allen Greer, Jonathan Hyde, and B. Newer. Um, we also got turns by uh, Patricia Clarkson as Carol Ann Parrish, um, the mother of Robin, of Robin Williams' character Alan Parrish. Um, Malcolm Stewart shows up. Frank, Welp, Fra- <laughs> Frank Welper. Frank Welker provided a number of special voice effects, and the resulting visual spectacle was held up by many critics as being on par with, of all movies, if you can believe this, Jurassic Park. And it paid off at the box office, because for being a two-hour, nearly two-hour, 104-minute, adapted family screenplay made on a budget of $65 million, made $263 million at the box office. And again, as you, as you talk to a lot of people who grew up, who might have seen it in theaters or caught it on home video, it's one of those that we look back on immensely, immensely fondly. And, and not without good reason. Because for its faults, and it does have its faults, it it maintains that the, that sense of wonderment, especially when you pair it with a with a bombastic moving score by James Horner. That it kind of translates from one generation to the next, and it it never looks entirely outdated. It 
it never comes across as unimpressive. But it's one of those that if I had kids, I would I would be quite proud to sit them down with this and say, here, kids, this is one of the movies that Daddy grew up on. And I, I legitimately believe I would give it about better than 50-50 odds. They would probably come away and say, and say, wow, that that actually, and say, wow, that compares well with anything that I, anything that I'm seeing in theaters. Uh, of course, my kids, I, they might or might not have that kind, have that kind of um, eloquence with their language where they would phrase it that way. Probably just something along the line lines of, wow, that was cool, Dad. But you get the idea. So before I start babbling. Uh, Mark, why don't you run down for us this this magical jungle plot? Uh, if if your kids are anything like my kids, they will say I like it. It did the part with the monkeys. So here we go. Um, that's actually that's actually probably almost exactly what they would say, and I would say, ah, oh, you are my kid after all. Uh. So I'll hit the bullet points with this. Uh, much like the singing frog, Jumanji is a box found in an abandoned building that's being torn down or built up, whatever. Either way, in either case, you, 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 when, you're, when searching through construction and you find a mysterious box, the rule of uh, leave it alone, nothing in that box is ever going to turn out to be good for you. Um, in any case, <laughs> in 1969, uh, we meet our young Alan Parrish, and he is running from a bunch of bullies, and they're saying, leave my girlfriend alone, you cad. And he runs into the shoe factory, and his father says, hey, you can't keep running from things your whole life. You've got to go and face your fears. This is important for the film, by the way. We also meet the man who uh, may have invented the high top uh, and marketed it to basketball players, Mr. Call, who is played by David Alan Greer. Um through distraction and conversation and whatnot, the shoe is misplaced in a machine, which causes the machine to break and for Carl to get fired because uh, Alan did not own up to the mistake that he had made. He goes outside and receives subsequent whooping by the bullies, and his bike is stolen. Later at home, uh, his father tells him that he's, that, uh, he's going to send him to boarding school, which causes Alan to throw a fit and yell at his father, that uh, that he hates him and so on and so forth. Uh, meanwhile, um, Alan's friend, oh gosh, Sarah, returns the bike. Uh, Alan shows her the game that he's unearthed from the ground, and they begin to play Jumanji, which results in Alan being sucked into the game and bats running Sarah out of the house. We then fast forward to 1995, where B.B. Newworth, Kirsten Dunst, and... Uh, her brother, played by uh, Bradley Pierce, move into the old parish home. They, too, find the, the board game. It starts to unleash all manner of holy hell. Uh, they read the instructions which say that if you finish the game, said holy hell will return to uh, where, from whence it came. So they said, okay, we got we to gotta finish the game. Unfortunately, uh, so the next role not only releases a lion, but it also releases Alan, who has grown up into Robin Williams. Um, he has experienced the passage of time in the game. He has become a bit savage. Uh, 
And after some reluctance to continue and to try to resume his life, he starts looking for his parents. He goes to the shoe shop, finds out the shoe shop has been closed down because his father did, in fact, love him and spent his fortune and his life looking for Alan uh, until he died. So Alan agrees to continue the game, to finish the game, so that life may resume normalcy. They realize that they need Sarah in order to do that because she started the game with Alan, and there are four players for this game. Uh, she, has been, she has suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, is somewhat of a recluse. Uh, she takes a little bit of convincing, but ultimately they all decide they're going to play the game to the end no matter what it takes. Of course, the next thing that happens is they release a gun-wielding hunter who's trying to kill Alan. And at this point in the movie, it's a lot of repeat. It's roll the dice, holy hell, run for, the, <laughs> run for your life, rinse, repeat, until uh, the very end where Alan faces off with the hunter, rolls the finishing, di- uh, finishing dice, and wins the game, thus causing everything we have seen for the past two hours to undo itself. Resulting, resulting in Alan and Sarah becoming a couple, doing away with the game, throwing it in the river, growing, uh, growing up together to become married. Alan runs the shoe shop. Carl is rehired. And in present day 1995, they meet up again with Kirsten Dunst and Bradley Pierce, this time with their parents. And they warn them of, of to not go on the ski trip that ultimately causes their demise, and they all live happily ever after. But, you see, they leave room for a sequel because Jumanji lies partially buried in the sand on a beach where another hapless passerby may find it. And now to prosecute this uh, quaint little film, here we go. Your witness, sir. You know, when I think back over the long, long story career of Robin Williams, this might have been, contrary to whatever Joe Johnston may have believed, just about the worst movie in which Robin could have chosen to uh, tap into his sense of restraint. (laughs) Keep in well because keep in mind, Jumanji and I, I had to look this up to be sure is three years removed from his turn as the genie in Aladdin, wherein he was given fantastic leeway to improvise his parts. Um, there's. There's a story that to record the part of the peddler, nothing was actually written for him. They just supposedly set him up with a conference table full of bric-a-brac and just kind of let him go in this character voice and just went with what they've got. And some actors, some of the... Sometimes one of the worst things you can do is constrain them. I remember hearing that often on Scrubs, uh, Neil Flynn, who played the janitor, 
often the scripts would would contain little more than bullet points or, or even sometimes and I, I wonder to this day how much Bill Lawrence was joking when he referred to this sometimes it would just contain a little post-it note that just said whatever Neil wants to do they, they would just take it and take it and let it run he, he didn't need to have everything spelled out for him and I understand that that was the nature of this story but here's my problem with that we're talking about a character who has been through some fantastically unbelievable shit. This is a man who has been sucked into a board game and spent almost the entirety of his life in near complete isolation, surviving on his wits in a jungle. And he, he's coming to all this as previously a, a very weak-willed, milk-toast suburban kid as a bullying victim. When you take that into consideration, he comes out back into the real world as adult Alan Parrish. Incredibly, shockingly, Often well-adjusted, surprisingly, surprisingly verbal, the, and allow me to armchair screenwrite for a moment. What I think would have almost been more compelling, and number one, I'm going to assume that a lot of you out there have watched the second and third seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and number two... If you haven't, the hell have you been waiting for? Those are two of the greatest seasons of any show in television history. No, you're, you're not getting a spoiler apology here. Go. Shoot. Download it. Watch them. Anyway, at the close of season two, Angel, the vampire character played by David Boreanaz, has gone at that point from being cursed with a guilty soul and conscience for you know his years of immortal carnage that he wreaked as a bloodsucker to having his soul taken away from him, doing arguably some of the worst things he's ever done, having his soul returned to him in the final moments of the season, having... The, pretty much at the time, the love of his life um, pierce him through pierce him through the heart to save the world, and then a few episodes into the third season, he is basically spit back out and returned to Earth from hell. When he comes back, he is feral. For a, for a good while. He's, he's confused. He's frightened. He, frightened. He's lashing out at practically anybody who gets near him because, depending on who you believe, he sees them as either food or a threat. Either or. It's what you would expect from an experience like that. 
And in a way, you almost expect that the shock of that experience of all of a sudden being back in the world he grew up in would really cause Robin Williams, would really cause Alan Parrish to go into kind of a survival state like that. He would be terrified. He, because this isn't even remotely the world that he the world that he grew up in. This is a generation removed from that. And it almost seems like it's too subtle. Like he's trying too hard to be too nuanced, too nuanced about it. Um, when really he should be kind of going all Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio in, oh, Help me out, Mark. What, what what was the one where he finally got the if we give you the best actor, will everybody just shut up? Oscar. What movie was that? The Wolf of Wall Street. I'll look. I'll look at it. Yeah, he he got got the one where basically he he had to survive and survive in the wilderness. Oh, fucking yeah. Okay. Um. Give me half a second. I, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, uh, not, I. Thing, but. Um, eh, the Revenant. The yeah, the, the the Revenant. Thank you. Yeah, full disclosure. I I'm not a DiCaprio fan. A few movies aside, I practically never have been. So, um, <laughs> I I I have absolutely no shame for forgetting what that movie was. Um, but that, 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 that's the first problem is we would have been served by a much more unleashed, creatively liberated Robin Williams. But the rest of the problem is in the fact that a movie is a storytelling project. It you can you can dress it up in spectacle and sound and fury all you want to, but ultimately a movie is supposed to tell an interesting story. This is not necessarily interesting. <laughs> what it what it is is it's it's predictable, but the worst part is it's predictable and it expect its spectacle to carry it nonetheless. Now, hang on, everybody, grab your beverages of choice uh, tonight. Mine happens to be vanilla Coke Zero. Uh, we're, we're wrestling fans on this show, so, of course, we tend to sometimes, occasionally, even briefly, think of things in professional wrestling terms. For me, it was like watching a lot of the ladder matches and Hell in a Cell matches I've seen. Uh, for for you uninitiated folk out there, these are big, spectacular, violent brawls. Uh, they're, they're extreme. They're extremely action packed. And sometimes the criticism you hear of a lot of these kinds of matches are they tend to go high spot rest, high spot rest, because th- there's nothing that really tells a story. It's just somebody does some big stunt with a weapon. 
They lay around for a, for a while, acting exhausted or hurt. They get up. Then there's another big stunt. They lay around a little bit longer. They get up. Stunt. Layer, stunt. Rest. Spot. Rest. Spot. And that's all it is. And there's nothing in between that connects them meaningfully and makes them mean anything. Unfortunately, that is what Jumanji is. Visually, it is a treat. It was impressive then. It is impressive today. Period. Fight me if you disagree. But there is not a whole lot of character building going on between all that fantastic CGI, all that incredible all that stunning, captivating cinematography. There's nothing that's making us give a whole, lot of, a whole lot of a shit except for the fact that everybody just has to keep coming back to the, coming back to the game, which in itself doesn't exactly follow a whole lot of logic, a whole lot of rhyme and reason. It's just roll dice, thing randomly happens. Okay. And, and that's it. It's just waiting around from one action sequence to another. It isn't particularly well-written. The characters are extremely by the numbers, which, again, and I can't say it enough times, as Robin Williams movies go, that's incredibly depressing because the one thing you were almost always guaranteed was that you were never going to get a performance like him that just anybody else could have delivered when, when he was at his best. And if you really think about it, this was kind of the tail end of the best years of Robin's career. Uh, if, you, if you disagree, feel free, Mark, feel free to speak up and say so later. Are we? Dis- but, I, I don't remember when the um, the what was it eight millimeter the the series of pictures he did um, that were dark. It was, it, it, like he had gone was, into this. He had gone into the this hole where he was doing like family comedies, and, and and he was being criticized for it. So then he does this series of really dark pictures. One of one of which is, go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. I, I know, I know the one you're talking about. You're talking about the stretch when he made Insomnia, when he made One Hour Photo. Yeah, was... One Hour. And then what's the one where he's fighting like the the the, the children's character? Or he I... is the children's oh, character. Oh, Death the Smoochie. Death the Smoochie. Right. Um, yeah, that, yeah. That was the that was the late '90s and early two and early 2000s. Now. Those were roles in which him being very grounded made sense. Well, and even in Death to Smoochie's case, uh, that was that was a black comedy. Uh, so he was allowed to be just a little, uh, just a little bit unhinged. But I just I brought again, them up because about- I I would tell you that was the end of his. You know uh, that that was the height of his acting. Uh, of his of his serious acting, yes, I would agree. Uh, but there was that there was that couple of years period 
where we got Aladdin, we got Jumanji, we got Mrs. Doubtfire. I, I might be missing a highlight somewhere in there, but I don't think so. And this was all just not all that long after uh, he had gotten the Academy Award nod for Dead Poet Society, but it was, it was pre-Goodwill hunting. But it just, it feels like it was try like they tried to rein it in too far. And I, I would have loved to have read the first draft that Robin rejected. Because if it was something that was a little bit more far-flung and had a little bit more of the, the kind of surreal and mysterious elements that uh, Van Allsburg has said he tried to weave into that first draft of the screenplay, that might have been something that could have suited his best qualities a little bit better. Because as it is, what we got at times, it just feels it feels as flat as an open can of Dr. Pepper that's been left out in the sun for two days. And there's just there's not much worse than a flat Robin Williams. So, with that being said, I cede the floor to you, sir. So, I want to attack the. Uh, prosecution's assertion that uh, the film suffers under the weight of Robin Williams' restraint. That's not the way he put it, but that's how I interpreted what he said. And it's an acting choice and a, and a directing choice for, for, to be certain. And I was a little surprised by... I think one of the things that drove me away from Jumanji when it came out in 95 was I was a little sick of Robin Williams doing the same act that he had been doing in the late seventies when he was high on cocaine. I enjoyed him high on cocaine and, you know, doing uh, Shakespeare, three mile Island <laughs> reality. What a concept. I enjoyed those years of Robin Williams, but those years had passed and while Aladdin still is remarkably funny in his performance and his <laughs> coke but not coked up performance as the genie, still memorable and still very funny, and certainly it gives my kids stitches. Um, it's not something I need to see in every one of his performances. So I tend to enjoy Robin Williams dialed back and a, a more focused actor. To the specific performance in the context of what happens to him, you got enough of that when he first comes out of the game. You have him running around and he's disoriented and he doesn't know what year it is. That's not the point of the movie, though. That's Encino Man with Brendan Fraser. Go watch that if you want to see someone who's, you know, was a caveman and suddenly ended up in the, you know, in the modern world and has to somehow adapt. And that's the whole fucking movie. Okay, that's that. This was not that movie. If you, from a storytelling perspective, you can't spend too long with him being disoriented. You will lose the pace of the movie. 
I thought he spent just enough time and just enough effort acting disoriented, uh, believably disoriented, before the weight of what had happened to him and what his decisions cost him moved him in, in the direction the movie needed to go. He went looking for his parents. He went to the shoe store, to, to the shoe factory, rather. He comes to realize that everything he knew and loved was gone. And he's like, fuck it. I guess I'm a 40-year-old man now, and I have to move on. And he won't even play the game originally with, with, the, with those kids. He's like, well, sucks to be you guys. Lots of luck. Lots of luck with the lion in your drawing room and <laughs> bats on your chimney and the monkey stealing cop cars. That all made sense and was a strong narrative for me and I thought were good character choices. I don't think the movie would have... I don't think zany Robin Williams does the movie any justice. It's not the story they were telling. It's not the character that he was. And I think he was sufficiently traumatized by the experience. But let me also say that, uh, you know, look... I, I don't want to go off on a tangent here. Uh, we, we've, we've discussed it a couple of times, either on this show or Damn You Hollywood or uh, TV Party Tonight, the effect of soldiering on the human brain. Being out in the jungle un, uh, under the threat of death and how that affects people. And it affects people differently depending on your innate resiliency, depending on how you are wired. So while some people it heavily traumatizes and causes them to make maybe some not so good choices, other people are able to shoulder it and leave productive lives and move forward. It, it all comes down to individual resiliency. Since we're not really given a, that perspective on Alan, we're shown a little bit of what he's like. He's a bit, little bit of a doormat, a little bit of a mouse. But ultimately, you know, he's also shown to have some degree of a backbone. He does, in fact, stand up to the bullies. So one could surmise that he's got the, the wire, you know, just enough of the wiring, just enough the, of the resiliency to withstand the traumatic experience in the jungle and affect him to a point, but not so much that he's zany Robin Williams for two hours, which would have been too much and too much of a distraction, and it would have derailed the picture. Um, so now that I've dealt with Sean's central prosecution of the movie as I heard it, and he'll have a chance to respond to say, but I also said this or however he chooses to respond. Let me defend the general picture here. And I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about why I didn't want to watch this movie in 1995 to begin with, other than the fact that I had no use for zany Robin Williams at this point in my life. Um, I thought the idea of... I, I, the movie is about what I thought it was going to be, but at this stage in my life, I think I was more accepting of it and more willing to forgive the very simplistic narrative because of the strong character pieces throughout. The movie is a very simple tale. It's literally, as I said before, rinse and repeat. It's danger is unearthed. Your, your stars react. 
more danger is on Earth, stars react. And this goes until we've done it enough times and then resolution. And if that's all the movie was, it, it's a shit movie. The reason why Jumanji works is because of, one, the per- strong performances. And, and I'll tell you, if you've heard us on Damn You Hollywood, you know we're not huge fans of children actors. But I wasn't kidding when I said this is probably one of Kirsten Dunst's best performances. She acts with her eyes better in this feature better than most adults do. The, the kid who played the brother was fine. He was perfectly adequate. But Kirsten Dunst shines like a diamond throughout this picture. She's a stunning child actress. She is absolutely believable. Unlike some other actors, you know, I'm watching Fuller House right now. Uh, Elias, whatever the hell his name is, who plays the youngest brother, the, the, the middle brother on that show. Pat and I have talked about how his acting range appears to be scream into the camera. Scream and mug. Scream and mug. That's it. That's his acting ability. Um, Jake Lloyd in The Phantom Menace. Whine incessantly. <laughs> just, just whine through the entire picture. Whine all your lines. Um, so not, not the best examples of children actors. Certainly there are better ones. But by and large, a lot of the children actors are somewhere between eh and ugh. And Kirsten Dunst stands head and shoulders above above many professional adult actors currently making movies today. She had range. She had pitch. She was phenomenal in this. And she carries a lot of the movie. You know, to go back to Sean's argument about Robin Williams' restraint, well, you know what? He had to share the screen with her. And if had he sucked up the entire screen by peacocking around and doing his Coke performance, you wouldn't have, he would have pushed her clear out of frame. And the movie would have suffered because of it. Now let's talk about Bonnie Hunt for a moment. Uh, you know, at, when they first introduced her uh, character, I was, uh, I was like, oh, oh, here we go. Um, but she actually turns around and gives you a very subtle, believable performance of a, of a child who grew to be a woman struggling with this horrible truth that no one will believe. No one believes that this kid up and disappeared into a, into a board game. You know, no, no, one be, no one believes that she was molested by bats. And again, they gave her just enough of resistance to make it interesting. But again, you know, we got to get the kids to the mall. We got to get these people playing the board game. You don't have that much time to be chasing her around New Hampshire, getting her to do this. They gave it just enough time. They gave her just enough resistance. And lastly, the, uh, the aforementioned David Allen Greer you know, like I said, I don't think I don't think his feature roles have been particularly strong. I think he I think he's an exceptionally funny man. Uh, his last uh, stand-up comedy where he was, you know, doing uh, you know sort of the Chinese leader type thing, uh, I thought was was exceedingly funny. 
but I don't, I, I, you know, name, name your, your five greatest David Allen Greer movies. Go ahead. I'll wait. But in this one, again, I'll go back to Sean's word, the use of restraint. David Allen Greer can be also a, a over-the-top silly guy. To, just as an aside, I still think the funniest thing he's ever done is Don Nosol Simmons from Amazon Women on the Moon. But I digress. Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. Anywho, um, David Allen Greer turns in a really funny performance just reacting to things without being over-the-top. He's still, a, he's still, you know, playing someone who is a police officer, doing what a police officer does. He'd probably be a sheriff's deputy in this case, but I digress. Um, yeah. Facts mean things. Details. Any case, uh, he reacts appropriately to monkey stealing his car and, you know, various... Uh, Various terrible jungle things happening in his, you know, sleepy town in New Hampshire without going so crazy as to becoming distracting. That's the thing. And and I'll end my defense of the movie on this. In a world in which you've decided that a board game can produce from the ether stampeding pachyderms and man-eating vines and a lion and a hunter and whatever else the movie needs it to produce you have characters believably reacting to these things the world itself may be fantastic but the people living in it seemed very real and that's a strong defense of a fantasy movie of of this type because if you go if you underreact too much there's no dramatic tension if you overreact too much it be, just becomes a silly circus in, in, in a world that was already unbelievable to begin with. The art of presenting Jumanji is finding the balance between believability and silliness. And that's where it's the most successful. It hits just the right pitch. Your last word, sir. Well, I'll keep them fairly brief. I agree with the defense. I absolutely agree. This is, if you were to run down the entirety of Kirsten Dunst's career, from Interview with the Vampire right up to today, this would probably stand as one of her most artful performances. The same goes for Bonnie Hunt. Hers is easily the character that is imbued with the the most subtlety, the, with the most thought put in to the right emotions needed for the character, and 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 just the right and just the right degree of care. David Allen Greer, okay, Mark and I have both established that hey, he's outstanding in this movie. He's an utter gem, and again, it shows why he was easily one of, if not the most overall talented people to come out of In Living Color. 
That's why the biggest problem is in the fact that the man on whom this entire movie was literally hinged delivers what amounts to a dialed-back-too-far performance. And, you know, the, the, the defense is trying to deal in absolutes a little bit, and I don't agree with that. He's trying to say, well, he doesn't have to be Brendan Fraser in Encino Man. Hey, first off, bite the most supple part of my ass. I liked Encino Man. Thank you very much. <laughs> and second, you know, you don't have to be zany throughout the entire movie. The entire thing does not have to be Robin Williams as the peddler or the genie. Or, you know, the equivalent to later on, live on Broadway, Robin Williams. You don't have to get that the whole way through. But when it comes to this movie, we're talking about a guy who has been sucked back and forth in time. Who, I mean, uh, let's face it, that, that moment when he arrives in, when he arrives in reality again. Back in back in his world, back back on Earth, and it has to frantically ask, "What year is it?" That that became a meme, for God's sake. You know, for for any time, nostalgia just makes just makes a big roaring comeback into the present day. That's that's the first reference we turn to is we turn to that image of grown Bray Wyatt drink looking Alan Parrish going, what year is it? Uh, And yet it takes a matter of hours, if that, for him to all of a sudden kind of become shockingly accepting (laughs) of, uh, of the world, of the world around him. All of a sudden, you know, he's, Let's be fair. It's not like, to be fair, it's not like he's going back to being dead poet society, Robin Williams. But it's one of those where you look at Bonnie Hunt's reaction and you go, yeah, yeah, that'd be about what I would think. To you, you look at Robin slash Allen and you go, fuck me, you're taking this well. <laughs> You got over that shit quick. I will have a metric fuck ton of what you're having. <laughs> um, you know, because and again, back to the back to the Brendan Fraser comparison. That's one of the things I liked about it is because for his, for his manners and as such a '90s concept as Encino Man was. Brendan was about as believable as you could expect an unfrozen caveman to be. Um, you know, we we didn't need we we didn't need Brendan we didn't need Brendan Fraser in this movie, but we didn't exact. I'm not so sure we exactly benefited as much as much from Phil Hartman's unfrozen caveman lawyer. 
Robin Williams as Joe Johnson, I think, thought we would have. I think Robin should have been allowed to improvise just a little bit more. Yeah, maybe don't let him go full-on Disney off the rails. I mean, let's, let, let's not get Mrs. Doubtfire carried away here. But there might have been a little more room to let him be a little more feral and kind of at least show a little more of him easing into things just a little bit alongside Bonnie Hunt's character, kind of uh, between the action pieces. It would have given things a little bit more substance rather than it just being uh, a waiting period between spectacular special effects, as, as wonderful as those special effects are. It, it's more predictable than it has to be. It was always going to be, I think, a little bit by the numbers. We have a pretty good idea where this is going. But there was room to make us care, I think, a little bit more about Alan in between. So... Really, that's that's what I keep coming back to. Is is it a good movie? Yes, certainly, unequivocally good. And like I said, it it hold it holds up well. But do we look at it through some through some certainly Gorilla Monsoon esque drink, rose tinted shades? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. Prosecution rests. Um, I think we've said all that needs to be said about this. My, uh, I watched it with my kids. Uh, kids enjoyed it. I got a little teary out at the end. Not, 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 uh, you, none of you need, not Lord of the Rings, you kneel before no one, my friends. <laughs> I, I did not ugly, I did not ugly cry at the end of this movie like I did at Coco. Um, but you know, I, as a guy who who cries at more movies than he'd like to admit to, this 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 brought a little bit of a tear. Uh, but I, you know, I think for a midnight, you know, as as nihilistic and morose as the mid '90s was. I actually thought this was a, a bright and sunny picture. It was an a, it was a fun family friendly action adventure, you know that you know that that uh, that has a nice little message and and it was yeah again it's like something I can show my seven and my almost seven year old and three and a half year old. My wife sat down and enjoyed it with us, and it's like it's we talk so much on these podcasts about you know film and the meaning of and. And what and how it affects society. This is as benign a film as I've seen in quite some time. It's just there to entertain. It has no greater meaning in the in in the stratosphere or in the universe. And that's kind uh, of what know, I like about it. You know, I I really struggle sometimes with the fact that I just flat out think that I. I, I lack quite the instinctive pining for nostalgia that runs mm-hmm. through a lot of our generation. Um, in particular, because so much of what I hear is, 
just the, the absolute extreme of everything nowadays absolutely sucks. Nothing whatsoever is original. Everything was better back was better back when I was a kid. And when it, but when it comes to the, the really family-oriented movies of the early to mid-90s, that might be one of the few times where I'm forced to sit back and go, no, I'm going to give you this one. I, I can't argue with it because I, I think of movies like uh, Jumanji and The Mighty Ducks and The Sandlot. And those are movies that, for all the stuff we sometimes watch from that era and we go back and watch them now and we're absolutely gobsmacked that they won us over so easily back then, those are flicks that you can watch them today. And it's and it's like sometime between 1990 through ni- through 1995 was just five minutes ago. Be- because they're just that they're just that good. And yeah, I, I have to get into performance a little bit, and I have to exaggerate uh, some of the flaws. And it, and it isn't perfect. Yeah, it it does feel sometimes like it lags a little bit, and you're just kind of sitting on the edge of your seat, but not in a good way. You're sitting on the edge on the edge of your seat just waiting for something big and awe-inspiring to happen again. Can I can I jump but, in here? That yeah, was well, my one that was my one criticism of this movie. And it was something that my wife and I talked about because it was to me it was I was sort of just keeping it internal. I didn't really want to start going into, you know, podcast mode when I'm trying to enjoy the film with my family. But even Melissa at the end of it goes, or you know, towards the end of it, just just play the fucking game where you are. Stop running. Why do you have to keep going back to the house? <laughs> and I'm dying laughing because I'm thinking that the for for half the picture. Why do they keep going back to the house other than pad the running time in in the narrative? <laughs> I don't agree with Melissa on everything, but I'll but I will give her that one. Uh, <laughs> That, like I said, it's it's spot rest, spot rest, and you don't have to be, you don't have to be beaten over the head with action sequences, the entire time. But I I, I did, and again I exaggerated it somewhat for the sake of, of kind of my my role in the case. Is I did feel like of everybody that should have been given kind of the most dynamic development. I felt like Robin really did, for being the top bill of the movie, he really did fall behind Bonnie Hunt, David Allen Greer, Kirsten Dunst, and to a slightly lesser, and to a much lesser extent, actually, Bradley Pierce. Which... I don't know. I, I guess you could say it's kind of a testament to him that maybe he didn't want to go all out and upstage them. But it felt like maybe he might... You really didn't get the impression that he maybe kind of pulled his punches too much a little sometimes? No. I I, I swear to Rudy I didn't. He swear to Rudy. 
I, I like it. That must be your equivalent to my swear to Zod. <laughs> um, uh, nope, stole that one from Bill Cosby. From Bill? Really? Yeah. Bill Cosby does a bit where uh, he implores the audience at his stand-up show to stop swearing to God. Calling out God's name in vain is distracting. You're distracting God from his important work of trying to solve hunger and peace and all of that. Call on Rudy. Rudy ain't doing nothing. Okay? He'll give you the same results, and you won't distract God from the important work. Yeah, you know, Rudy was even willing to step up and basically take the stand in the court of public public opinion to defend him from rape allegations. Oh, wrong, Rudy. Sorry. You know, I Sorry. swear to God, I thought you were going with the uh, with the with the with the kid who played football movie, and I'm like, no, not that Rudy. Nope, you you swerved on me, and and you landed right where you needed to. Well done, ten points. No, 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 for, for, no. From from the moment you said swear, Rudy, that was the first place my first place my mind went was was uh, Keisha Knight Pulliam. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, different Rudy, but sure. Uh, he's referencing Rudy yeah, I, from his childhood. Yeah, yeah, I, I went to a Huxtable. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, in the interest of time immortal, uh, I think we will uh, we'll draw to a close here. Um, we will be back in two weeks, January 9th, for uh, 300. And we've got another, you know, synchronicity thing going here. We're going to do the comic book on source material, and then we'll defend and prosecuted here on this show and then the next, and, and the metal hammer of doom that week I will have nothing to do with anything which is fine what, um, am I am I defending or prosecuting 300 uh, um again unless some of one of one or both of us has a passionate uh a a, a passionate desire to prosecute or defend something i.e. catwoman or something like that um, I'm just going back and forth between what we've previously done. So since I defended this week, I'll prosecute the next week. Okay. Yeah, that's that's fine because that's that is one wherein, for as much as I sort of have to exaggerate my perceptions of Jumanji's flaws this week, when it comes to 300. Man, oh man, as with almost every Zack Snyder movie not called Dawn of the Dead, I am acutely aware of how <laughs> imperfect that is. <laughs> so, um, and, yet, and yet at the same time, I fucking love that movie. Well, good. You will passionately defend it then while I try to rip it to shreds. Definitely. Um, Definitely. And then you'll... And then you'll um, you'll prosecute whatever the movie you pick for the thirtieth. Yes, um, I as I was telling Mark before the show, I had a few ideas in mind. I had it down to like my first half dozen, and then on my Facebook feed, I happened to click on an outlet that had a list of the absolutely phenomenal haul that's coming to Netflix in January. I just went, holy shit. I'm going to have to back up a little bit and reassess my options because I just might find something, might find something here. Uh, because I'll tell you right, I'll tell you right now, let me tell you something, Gene Mean. Uh, in fact, you know what? 
I will go ahead and declare it right now because I don't believe we ever got a chance to do this during the long road to ruin days, and I happen to know I think it is. In fact, here, I'm going to check right now. While we're on the air, absolutely sure that it is coming. Because if it is, I want us to do the Godfather Part 3. Oh, God. Okay. That's the one I haven't seen yet. Ah, yes. There, there it is. Three headlines confirming for me. The Godfather Trilogy is coming next month. We didn't get to do it when we, made, when we were making Long Road to Ruin. And by gum, I still think we should maybe one day resurrect that show for a one-off to do the entire to do the entire trilogy. Um, but man, that is the kind of movie that this series is made for. <laughs> it certainly is, Ollie. Good pick. I, I'm impressed. And you and I and and I am in the. I am in the dubious position of now having to defend The Godfather 3, so you've laid the gauntlet at my feet. <laughs> well, uh, not entirely, because it, it has been years upon years upon years since I've seen it. And what I remember my impression of it being was I had seen The Godfather, I had seen The Godfather Part 2, and I loved them both. Uh uh, my my biological dad eh, hated. Well, he should he, he didn't. Not nah, hate's not too strong a word. Eh, he really pretty much hated the Godfather Part Three. Um, and I heard other I heard other people here and there say, "Oh God, terrible fucking movie." I sat down and watched it, and I didn't see what all the hatred was for. I didn't get it. I mean, I didn't um, get it, and I didn't understand movie i understood it but i didn't I, I just couldn't quite tap into that same resentment for it so i mean me prosecuting is going to be interesting because i've because i've got to take on a movie that i'm kind of okay with and try to understand why so many why so many people despise it so much since you've got the list in front of you you want to go ahead and pick um february 13th pick because that's you too well, let's just see what else is coming next month and see if there's something on there. Which I'm assuming if it's coming next month, it'll stay into February. They don't get to think they don't get rid of things that quickly. Rarely, rarely, if ever. Um, I don't. I don't have the list for what's coming in February, so there may be something else. So that's that's subject to change. Uh, let's okay. run through a couple of what I'm seeing here. Uh, we have National Treasure. Uh, Dukes of Hazard. Got Thirty Days of Night, which I might be willing to give that one another shot. Uh, we have <laughs> okay, this is weird. Uh, Netflix does this weird thing where sometimes they will give a movie for a month or two and then bring it right back. Batman, Batman and Robin, Batman Begins, Batman Forever, and Batman Returns. Uh, God, what else looks like it would make good? Oh, we've got the Peter Jackson King Kong. Did we do that one already? No, and I so wanted you to pick that last year. 
Um, let me let me come back to that one then because that one definitely stuck out to me. Yeah, I might want to uh, save that for whenever the next Kong and Godzilla movies uh, are are out. Are, do we have one? Do we have one due sometime this year? Along Hold that thought because I, I I have the wrong page open right now, but keep that in your mind because later this year The Rock has the Rampage movie coming out, and that would probably be the most opportune time to do P- Peter Jackson's King Kong. Ooh, okay. I may watch that and go ahead and take some notes then and just set them aside. Oh, uh, yeah, Troy. Okay, Mark, help me out because I'm always getting them mixed up. Um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, is that Gene Wilder or Johnny Depp? Oof. Um, I want to say Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is Johnny Depp because Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is Gene Wilder. <laughs> then that could be a good one. Because, um, oh, God, one of us has to defend Tim Burton. Okay, I have it backwards. Charlie in the Chocolate Factory is Johnny Depp. Okay, so Willy Wonka. Okay, no, we're not touching Willy Wonka. Nope. Nope, <laughs> nope, bad. nope. Whole no. lot of nope. Leslie, nope. Um, got the... Toward the end of the month, the new arrivals kind of start to run out of steam. Um, oh, holy shit. <laughs> Cars 3 hits on January 31st. I am not subjecting us to that. I, yeah, well, I've already reviewed it, so that's fine. Absolute, absolutely all the hell, though. Okay, um, so we got Godfather... Oh man, National Treasure is tempting. Um, any good, any any good, mainly African American type films since it's Black History Month? Uh, let's back up because I did I see Training Day or did I read something wrong? Um, oh, I did not read something. Okay, now I think I'm going to go out on a limb and presume they're talking about the movie. Um, And you know, that is kind of a controversial one because that's known as kind of being one of the more baffling movies to win Best Picture. (laughs) We could could maybe have some fun with that one. Uh, But let's see what else we got here because that's the main one that stuck out along those lines uh, for me. Unless <laughs> unless you want to do one of the Bring It On movies because reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I, because I think that the first one was the one where it was um, the the mostly black high school versus the lily white suburban girls. All right, so I'm going to vulture.com here. What's new on Netflix in January 2018? I'm going to help you out here. It's your pick. I'm going to help you out. Yeah, the 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 main. If you're wanting to go, my my choices are. I say we do either National Treasure or if you want to go the Black History Month route. 
Um, we could possibly get a lively debate over whether Denzel Washington was really deserving of the Best Actor Oscar that Oscar that year, or if he just got it because a lot of the buzz going into that year's Academy Awards was. Um, we've we've got a chance to have a a black best actor and a black best actress. Uh, since nothing the, else here is really jumping out at me, I will go ahead and say training day is fine. Okay. Training day is good. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. hey, hey, oh my god, how do you how did you not pick wild hogs? <clears throat> <laughs> Just kidding. Because because no way do I want one of us to try to defend that. <laughs> no, I'm fine with training day. Um all right, so I will be actually yeah, in the in the yeah, okay. position we of were, having to prosecute it. We were. I'm going to be prosecuting training day. No, I'm prosecuting training day. Oh, you're right. Um, you. Yeah, we we talked earlier about about the kind of uh, bookmark, kind of a book ending, the beginning and and end of various performers performers primes. Okay, wild hogs was Tim Allen's prime voiding its bowels as it died. Well, then we are full up again <laughs> for, a, for a while here because March is already picked. I picked both of March's. Um, we have the original Death Wish on March 8th. And then um, on March 22nd, Lara Croft Tomb Raider 2, Cradle of Life, I believe it's called. Aww. Yeah, the Cradle of Life. Um. Yeah, I wanted to pick the harder one to defend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so what I say? I was prosecuting training day? Uh, yep, yes, I'm pro- you're prosecuting training uh, So which means I'm defending... No, I'm going to swap these. I'm going to prosecute twice in a row then. I'm going to prosecute Death Wish. And wow, that's bold. Yeah, because I want to defend. Were... I, I, I want to purposely defend a shitty movie. I, I, I we well, have more. We have fun when I do that. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say you're, you're granting me the gift of um, defending one of my all-time favorite movies. Yep. It gives me look. I, I get to not only twist your nipples a little bit by prosecuting <laughs> by prosecuting a movie you love. But then two weeks later, I get to somehow, you know, pull a Catwoman and defend an utterly shitty movie against all odds. I think that's what makes this show work. I'm half hard just thinking about it. Um, that takes us into <laughs> April, where me, what I say was, I was, yeah, yeah, me, yeah, me being half hard makes a makes a delightful segue. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, uh, let's see here. Okay, so the next one then would be April 5th for Video Games Week, uh, where I pick Tron. Um, I'm going to let you decide. Because right, I, I would have defended Lara Croft the previous show, which would make uh, me prosecuting Tron, um, which would break my heart. Uh, but I will let you decide. You can prosecute or defend. Okay, so so I so I have to prosecute a video game movie. 
uh, if that's what you're choosing. I was letting you decide. Well, you said it's video games month. Um, okay, because I got a few, and I don't know if I want to go the challenging route. And you know what? It's one of those movies that okay. Now, first, I, first, I gotta ask since I know it's not your wheelhouse. How willing are you to sit through a horror movie? Well, let's go back a step. We still have, I, what I was talking about was video game week has Tron in it. That's our show for for that oh. week. Oh, oh, it's video game week. Okay, for some reason I heard month. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, sorry, <laughs> video game week. So uh, that week we're right. like. like All right, um, I will. I will kind of keep tabs on my on my choices and come up with something by then. Okay. Because I um, I was about to make you sit through Silent Hill. <laughs> no, sir. All I want to know is if you'll prosecute or defend Tron. If you if you can't make up your mind now, we'll come back to it. God knows it's April. We're still in December. Um. You know what? As the bigger gamer of the two of us, I think it would be fun to defend Tron. I will prosecute. Oh, that breaks my heart. But considering how many times I do that to you, it turned about as fair play. Um, Prosecuting my baby. I love Tron. Um, All right. So, okay. So as I said, uh, we're doing, we are reviewing Rampage on April 24th, um, but I don't have another... uh, I don't have any. I don't have a non-trial scheduled for that week. Uh, I have I have the on-trial scheduled for May first. I mean, if it's still available, I say we we'll just do King Kong then. Uh, we could go one of we could go one of two ways. I was gonna say we could do we could do King Kong because I I completely love the Peter Jackson Kong. I know a lot of people don't, but I dig it. Um, but on the other hand, if you also want to go the, okay, now I can think of two others that we could, that we could do. If you wanted to go the Dwayne Johnson centric route, I would suggest Doom. Oh boy. (laughs) Um, okay. But, but. If we wanted to go the route of taking a classic game and turning it into a movie, it would be a stretch. Um, Battleship. Done. I love Battleship. Battleship was so stupid. (laughs) I so dug Battleship. Um, so I would I would say we have we have three options. I would say we could either we go with King Kong if we want to go with something that's got a giant monkey attacks city theme. Uh, if we want to just focus on trying to defend some of Dwayne's lesser hours, we go with Doom. And if we want to go with Silly, simplistic little game gets turned into a huge, bombastic action movie. We go with Battleship. So we're going Battleship, and I'm defending it. It is written. <laughs> it's in the schedule. <laughs> and that's May 1st. Um, as soon as you said Battleship, I was like, and I'm running with that. 
um, that's good for now. That that gets us all the way to May first. Um, you have a you you have a show right in the middle of May where nothing's going on to pick something any any anything you want. But I'll you know we'll, let let let's get through some of this year before I make you decide uh, what you want to do on May fifteenth. Sound fair? Well, yeah, that's that's also right around. I have no I have no firm date set, but that's also right around when I'm planning on moving back to Phoenix. Okay. So, uh, so we'll have to see what my what my timeline looks like right around then. Okay. I mean, if we need to not do a show this week, that's fine too. We can, I can find something else to fill the schedule. All right. Thank you for uh, if you've sat through all of that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Mark Schedules Podcast with guest Sean Comer. <laughs> <laughs> so, taking it from the top, um, in January we'll do 300, and then two weeks, uh, three weeks later, we'll do The Godfather Part Three, and oh, a time will be had by uh, by all. Um, go ahead, Sean. What you what you writing these days? What you plug in? What's it all about? What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? 42. And I was going to say, meanwhile, more, mean like, well, more like, welcome to Sean actually helps schedule podcasts for a change. <laughs> um, so getting the perfunctory out of the way first, as always, it's, it's routine, but I still mean it every time. Thank you to each and every last one of you who downloads and listens every week. Uh, we do this to inform, to entertain, Sometimes I'm not sure how much of it is to inform and entertain you and how much of it is to inform and entertain ourselves. The twain shall probably meet plenty in between, but means the world to us that you will set aside anywhere from often about 60 to 90 minutes to check out our little ramblings. As for what I'm working on, generally speaking, if you want to hit me up with as uh, – my nerd crush, Lisa Foyles, would say your love, hate, respectful disagreements. You can find me on Twitter at Comer Codex. Incidentally, it's also where you can find updates on my upcoming projects, such as my personal blog, ComerCodex.wordpress.com. I've got, whew, I'm keeping busy lately. I've got about three or four posts that are in process after a lengthy, much-needed break for the holidays. Um, meanwhile, Coming next month uh, over on thechairshot.com and yeswrestling.com, I'm going to have my return to professional wrestling writing and punditry with eight match tag, my weekly, possibly bi-weekly rundown of an eight match playlist to introduce Anyone from longtime fans to new initiates to the professional wrestling business to my favorite wrestlers, match types, eras, promotions, personalities, anything under the sun. And we're going to be starting it off in January with a, with a fantastic twofer. Uh, it's going to be the eight matches, the eight essential matches that comprise the long and storied feud between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker and my top eight Royal Rumble pay-per-view show stealers. Meanwhile, over on the newly resurrected FPGnews.com, I'm also going to be bringing back my 
live WWE Network pay-per-view coverage. For those of you unfamiliar with this or who have never been to 411 Mania, uh, I take a cue from our good friend, the great and inimitable Robert Winfrey, and also my esteemed colleagues Greg DeMarco and Tony Acero, by as I'm watching pay-per-views, for those who are unable to tune in, I provide match-by-match action breakdowns that go practically move-by-move. I do my best to relay the action as if you were actually there. And I'm going to be making my comeback with a real challenge this month, folks. I am going to be covering the Royal Rumble match itself. Uh, That is going to be a doozy. Again, you can check that out over on fpgnews.com. And last but certainly not least, my newest project, since a PlayStation 4 has come into my life recently, I have started a streaming channel. Um, I am now streaming... uh, Well, (laughs) I just got it a few days ago, so it's not quite seven days a week yet, but... I've been going for at least about one to two hours per day over at twitch.tv slash comercodex. And if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, I usually post updates when I'm streaming there. And I will also post spontaneously on Twitter. I'm still trying to get down to a firm schedule. It's probably going to fall into doing it in the evenings. Uh, I don't have a mic yet. I've got a headset on order. But... In the meantime, if you want to sit and watch me play anything from indie games to coming soon, Mass Effect Andromeda, uh, lately I've been playing a lot of Star Wars Battlefront 2, that's going to be the place to find it, and it's also where I'm soon going to be launching the start of an almost year-long campaign benefiting Extra Life. Uh, It's a charity that aids children's miracle network hospitals across the country and i'm going to be raising funds until november when i am going to be staying up for 24 hours straight gaming and i am going to broadcast nearly every second of it that i possibly can uh in the meantime i'm going to have a fundraising video going up on twitter and my facebook page shortly explaining how you can donate what exactly this this is, and soliciting ideas for ways that I can continue to drum up your support for a very worthy cause. Uh, until next time, this has been This Time. I'm Sean, you're not, and remember to never, ever dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Um, that wraps up this week on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network. Uh, we begin 2018 with TV Party Tonight, Fuller House Season Three Part Two, and the Metal Hammer of Doom uh, kicks off the year with a twenty with a late twenty seventeen release. Morbid Angel, uh, Kingdoms, Disdained. I hope you'll join us for those two shows. Uh, that's it for that week. We'll go. We'll do a full three shows the following week, and for the fo- for the weeks uh, finishing off the month of January, we're doing about three shows a week. That's the plan for now. Uh, hope you've enjoyed tonight's edition of On Trial. Uh, all rise. The judge has left the building. Court is now out of session. Be well, be safe, and behave.